Last time we spoke about the period of Japanese history known as the Meiji Restoration, we also briefly covered major wars fought during that time period, such as the Boshin War, Satsuma Rebellion, First Sino-Japanese War, Boxer Rebellion, and the Russo-Japanese War. Quite a lot of conflict for a rather small nation going through rapid modernization. Now the main reason the Meiji Restoration kicked off was Japan trying to protect itself from becoming colonized by any other great powers. With Japan's victory over Russia during the Russo-Japanese War, Japan had proven itself on the world stage, shocking the great powers. Japan had emerged as a regional power, if not the main Asian power in the world. Yet victory was bittersweet. The peace negotiations mediated by Theodore Roosevelt did not allow Japan to receive the indemnity payments after the war that brought the nation to the brink of bankruptcy. Japan felt cheated and betrayed by the United States, and the relations would only sour from this point on. This episode will be on the rise of the Japanese Empire. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we start, I want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn more about the history of Japan? I recommend their episodes on the Japanese warrior woman or the Ainu people of Japan. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over on YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel, where you can find a few episodes, like my four-part series on Asia during World War I. Give it a look. It would mean a lot to me. It's a very small channel. So the Meiji Restoration saw Japan by the start of the 20th century turn from a pre-industrialized isolationist state into a modernized regional power. Not only did Japan defeat both the Chinese and Russian empires, they also annexed Taiwan and then Korea by 1910, expanding their sphere of influence across East Asia. It seemed everything was looking bright for the empire of the rising sun. The people who fought not to be colonized had become colonizer themselves. Here is a quote from Emperor Meiji in regards to the annexation of Korea. It is as follows. We, attaching the highest importance to the maintenance of permanent peace in the Orient and the consolidation of lasting security for our empire and finding in Korea constant and fruitful sources of complication, have now arrived at an arrangement for permanent annexation. All Koreans, being under our direct sway, will enjoy growing prosperity and welfare, and will assured repose and security will come at a marked expansion in industry and trade. End of quote. Lest it be known, much like any nation colonizing another, it was quite brutal. As you would imagine, Japan exploited Korea economically. At the offset, Japan's policies were driven to increase agricultural production in Korea to meet the needs of Japan, particularly in the rice cultivation. 
Now, this is a particularly sensitive topic to this day, by the way. During the 2018 Olympic Winter Games, a NBS commentator named Joshua Cooper Ramo asserted that South Koreans' transformation into a global powerhouse was due to, quote, cultural, technological, and economic examples of Japan. End of quote. So yeah, the South Koreans demanded an apology and argued that Mr. Ramo was reopening old wounds carved by generations of brutal occupation by Japan. So try to imagine, Japan made efforts to stop Koreans from pursuing higher education and instead directed them towards the labor force to meet the demands of Japan. They burnt numerous Korean historical documents, made edicts for films to be in only Japanese, and really tried to wipe out any historical memory of Korea. The Japanese tore down historical sites and tried to assimilate Koreans to the Japanese language, Shinto, and its education system, which as we mentioned in a previous episode, was built with heavy Japanese nationalism. Some would argue this was cultural genocide. Others in Japan during this time would call it more of a civilizing movement. A 1939 statistic showed that among the total capital recorded by Korean factories, around 94% were Japanese-owned. While Koreans owned about 61% of small-scale firms, about 92% of large-scale enterprises were Japanese-owned. Anyways, I won't carry on any more about Korea, but just take it to mind. The annexation under the Empire of the Rising Sun was not so sunny, pun intended. On July the 30th, 1912, Emperor Meiji died of uremia. His family is mourning him, and his heir will be his son, Prince Yoshihito. At his funeral, a massive procession gathered to pay homage to the emperor that had brought a new era for Japan. Of this event, the New York Times wrote that the contrast between that which preceded the funeral car and that which followed it was striking indeed. Before it went old Japan, after it came new Japan. Yoshihiro was actually birthed by one of Meiji's concubines, Yanagihara Naroko. Um, concubine is a word we might use. Her official title was Gon no Tenji, which translates to Lady of the Bedchamber. This was common practice, and his official mother would be Empress Shoken. Meiji had 15 children with his concubines, of which 10 died prematurely, leaving Yoshihiro the only male heir. His poor empress, Shoken, was unable to produce children. Yes, Meiji had many hereditary diseases as a result of inbreeding, and that is going to play out in the story further. Prince Yoshihiro contracted cerebral meningitis three weeks after his birth. It is rumored that this occurred because of lead poisoning contracted from lead-based makeup of his wet nurse. Yoshihiro, due to his health problems, was unable to get past elementary education, and he proved to have very poor intelligence. Yoshihiro did have an aptitude for language, however. He was tutored in French and Chinese. He was invited to attend sessions of the House of Peers as a way of learning about the political and military concerns of Japan. He was quite fascinated with Western culture and would often sprinkle French words into his conversations to irritate his father. He was married to Kiji Sadako, who was carefully selected by Emperor Meiji for her intelligence. The couple would have three children, one being the future emperor 
of Japan, Hirohito. Now, when Yoshihiro ascended the throne, well, he was kept out of the public as much as possible for the reasons I just gave. In one rare case, he was shown in the public in 1913 for an imperial diet where he famously rolled his prepared speech into a cylinder and stared at the assembly through it as if it was a spyglass. So you can imagine rumors sprang from this in regards to his mental condition, and as time went by, the general, these are basically advisors, well, they were really pulling the strings, so to speak. Speaking of the general, when Emperor Meiji died in 1912 and Yoshihiro took the throne, this created a new era. What was once the Meiji era was now pronounced to be the Taisho era, and thus Yoshihiro became Emperor Taisho. As you can imagine, given the character of Taisho, it was going to be a bumpy transition, but that is an understatement. Admiral Yamamoto Gunbei, a man who would become Prime Minister of Japan twice, told General Matsukata Masayoshi that when it came to recommending a successor Prime Minister, quote, Emperor Yoshihiro is not of the same caliber as the previous emperor. In my view, it is loyal not to obey the Taisho Emperor's word if we deem it to be disadvantageous to the state. End of quote. So yeah, not a lot of faith in the new emperor, to say the least. In fact, a greater problem than the Taisho Emperor formed the time period known as the Taisho Sihen, or better known in English as the Taisho Political Crisis of 1912 to 1913. You see, during the final years of Emperor Meiji's reign, the government spending went through the roof, notably on overseas investments and defense. Prime Minister during this time, Sayanoji Kinamochi, began a tight fiscal policy which soon clashed heads with the military. The army minister in 1912, Yurihara Yatsuku, resigned in protest because of the defense spending cuts, and then the army proceeded to refuse to nominate a successor. Now the constitution of Japan required that the army minister be an active duty general. This led the cabinet to resign en masse, and the government of Sanji collapsed. Sanji resigned on December the 21st of 1912. The emperor in response appointed Katsura Taro, a former army general who had already served as prime minister twice to form a new government. Katsura was not a popular choice with the public, who thought he would serve the needs of the military over the people. When Katsura took office, he faced immediate problems, such as the navy. The navy sought an increased budget to fund the construction of new battleships, and thus threatened to withhold the appointment of a new naval minister as a bargaining chip. Katsura, unlike the previous guy, went straight to the emperor who issued an edict forcing the navy to provide a new minister. After this opposition parties attacked Katsura, forcing him to suspend the diet on three occasions. Popular protests on top of this forced Katsura to resign on February the 20th of 1913 and he was replaced by Yamamoto Gunahoye, a former naval admiral. So this back and forth gives you sort of a look at what will become a major problem further down the road. The constitution, as you can see, had problems, and the ability of the army or navy to withhold appointments of ministers was 
extremely problematic. This, amongst other parts of the Constitution, allowed the military to dominate the civilian government and things would get increasingly worse. Now, we are going to take a little sidestep away from this fascinating character who, one of my professors said, may have been mentally disabled to talk about a small event known as World War I. So as many of you probably already know, World War I broke out originating in Europe on July the 28th of 1914. If you're interested in certain battles of World War I, like perhaps the horrible Battle of Gallipoli, perhaps go check Kings and Generals over on YouTube. They have an episode on it and I highly recommend it. It just so happens, as I'm writing notes for this very podcast, on my own YouTube channel, the Pacific War Channel, I'm creating a four or five part series on World War I in Asia. So, if it comes out in time, why don't you go check out my channel at the Pacific War Channel, where you can find the Siege of Tsingtao, German raiders of the Pacific during World War I, China during World War I, Japan during World War I, and if I find enough time, Vietnam during World War I. That's enough of me shilling for today. Oh, and by the way, for you bookworms out there, in case you really wanted to know more, two main books were used in preparing this episode. The Making of Modern Japan by Marius Jensen, literally a staple of any Japanese history class, and Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan by Herbert P. Bix, which I can't recommend enough, as it contains information that was only made public in, I think, the year of 2000. Now, as we said in a previous episode, the British and Japanese signed the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902, which was renewed in 1905 and then again in 1911. When World War I broke out, Germany, like many other great powers, held concessions in Asia as well as in the Pacific. Notably, Germany held the sphere of influence in Shandong province and built the port city of Tsingtao. Yes, they also created the famous Tsingtao Brewery. To defend their possessions in Asia and the Pacific, the Germans had the East Asia Squadron. When war broke out, Britain asked Japan for assistance in destroying the East Asia Squadron. So Japan sent Germany an ultimatum, demanding it withdraw its troops and hand over Tsingtao to Japan. Germany did not reply, and Japan declared war on them on August the 23rd, and then also on Austro-Hungary on August the 25th, as there was a single Austro-Hungarian warship named SMS Kaiserin Elizabeth docked in Tsingtao's port. The East Asia Squadron fled Tsingtao under Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spee into the Pacific. They would go on to legendarily raid the Indian and Pacific Oceans. So Japan proceeded to send the IGN to blockade Tsingtao. What is really interesting is part of the fleet it sends has a seaplane carrier called the Wakamiya, which is capable of launching these small aircraft known as Farman MF-11, codenamed Longhorns. So the Japanese launched one of these aircraft to do reconnaissance as the IGA land 23,000 soldiers with over 142 artillery pieces to begin a siege of the port city. The British also backed this up with a few ships of their own and 1,500 men Note, they did not want Japan to do any of this, as they were quite weary of the Japanese operating in China, and for good reason. Tsingtao was quite heavily fortified with 
3,625 men and quite a few small warships in the harbor that could retaliate. There are a few mountains with forts in front of the city where most of these Germans will mount their artillery pieces and machine gun nests. But being outnumbered six to one, there was little hope for the defenders. Not to mention, many of these Japanese officers had experienced the siege of Port Arthur during the Russo-Japanese War, so you could say they were the perfect men for the job. Kaiser Wilhelm sent word to the defenders, and as it follows, quote, It would shame me more to surrender Tsingtao to the Japanese than Berlin to the Russians. End of quote. Quite a tall order to say the least. So the Japanese quickly figured out the East Asia squadron had fled, leaving just a few small warships behind in the port of Tsingtao. So they made their first historic move. On September the 6th, the Wakamiya launched her planes again, but this time with bomblets. The Longhorns attempted to bomb the warships in the harbor, not succeeding, mind you. But I mean, you can imagine being in what can only be described as planes that look like the Wright brothers flew them, with guys literally tossing bombs by hand at ships firing up at them, it was not going to be easy to say the least. Nonetheless, this was the first air-to-sea battle in history. So the IGA commenced closing in on Tsing Tsao, and the commander of the city, Alfred Waldeck, began to draw his forces tightly in and posted them on the most efficient hill forts to do the maximum damage possible. The IGA surrounded the city and began to dig trenches parallel to the ones the Germans hold, which really gives a sense of deja vu when you think about the siege of Port Arthur. The IGN and German ships in the harbor, meanwhile, are bombarding another, and the Germans even make multiple sorties to try and escape, but each fail. The IGA commenced an artillery bombardment for over seven straight days, with something like a hundred pieces shooting 1,200 shells a day. Now, if you thought the Japanese naval aircraft was a surprise for 1914, the Germans have a single plane of their own flown by a legendary aviator called Gunther Pruschau. This whole time, he's flying reconnaissance missions using a plane which is a Utrecht Tabe. If you get a chance to Google it, it looks like something Leonardo da Vinci might have created. Honestly, go Google it. Now, Pruschau did not fly reconnaissance alone. He also tried to drop bomblets like the Japanese had done, with little to no success, mind you. But hear this, according to Pruschau, on one occasion, he saw one of the Japanese Longhorns, and apparently he flew up close to it, and using his pistol, he shot the pilot and downed the aircraft. Now, if this was true, it would be the first aerial victory in history. Mind you, a lot of evidence suggests he was just telling a tall tale. So the IGA continuously make attempts to storm the mountain forts and get met with machine gun fire, but the defenders only have so much ammunition, and by November the 6th, it looks like they're going to run out. Pruschau is given the last dispatches and flies out to make his way to Berlin, which is a crazy story of its own. He would first go to Shanghai, San Francisco, New York, and Gibraltar, where he is captured and imprisoned in London as a POW, only to escape and flee to the Netherlands, and then finally end up back in Germany by August of 1915. He even serves during the remainder of the war, and then after the war becomes this renowned air explorer. In 1931, he dies in a tragic plane crash over Patagonia. 
Well, backing things out, the defenders do run out of ammunition on November the 6th, and the IGA realizes this. The IGA bayonet charged the lines of defense, overwhelming the defenders. Waldeck surrenders to the Japanese after the defenders had 199 dead and over 504 wounded. The Japanese suffered 733 dead, with over 1,282 wounded, and the small British force that was sent, they have 12 deaths and 53 wounded. What's sort of interesting is the Japanese take the remaining 4,700 German prisoners and ships them back to Japan where, well, they're treated quite well. Funny to visualize, but quite unlike World War II, the Japanese during World War I treated the POWs with respect and honestly, quite a lot of open friendliness. Some of the Germans who were part of the military band orchestra even toured Japan from 1914 to 1918 in their uniforms, and they became very popular. The experience of the good treatment was so much that after the war was concluded, 170 Germans chose to stay in Japan, most likely having found wives there. In the meanwhile, the German East Asia Squadron meets up in the Pacific. They send a single ship, the SMS Emden, into the Indian Ocean to raid, and boy does it make a name for itself. The SMS Emden ends up destroying two Entente warships, sinks or captures over 16 British ships, one Russian ship, a bunch of Greek ships, and she bombards Madras, Penang, and British Malaya, setting off to destroy many wireless stations in the Cocos Islands, but unfortunately her raiding has done so much mayhem to the Entente powers that the HMS Sydney is sent out to hunt her down. As the SMS Emden is sending out marines to destroy the wireless station on the Cocos Islands, she is attacked by the Sydney. The Emden is forced to abandon the marines on the island as she's dueling the Sydney, which quickly outguns her. And the Emden ends up beaching herself on North Keeling Island as a result. The Sydney demands she surrender and shells her a few more times, until the Emden complies. 130 of Emden's crew are killed during this battle, and the abandoned marines? Well, they end up stealing a schooner and eventually make their way to Constantinople by May. Now, that was a single raider in the Indian Ocean. Meanwhile, the entire rest of the East Asia Squadron began to do the same thing, but in the Pacific. Von Spee has four ships with him, all cruisers. He sails out to attack Papit in Tahiti with the goal of stealing their coal deposits and any Allied shipping he can find. Remember, this is at a time when the majority of shipping uses coal, so you arguably have to coal up quite often and since the Germans were isolated in the Pacific, with all their colonial possessions being taken from them, the only alternative was to raid. Papit proves to be easy to push over, and the island has something like only 200 defenders versus von Spee's 1,500 sailors. The Germans sneak into the harbor and destroy two small warships while bombarding the coastal batteries. However, the defenders destroy their own coal deposits before von Spee's men can get their hands on it, and thus he shells the city a bit before leaving for the Easter Islands to coal up. Von Spee at this point decides to raid the Cape Horn and break for the Atlantic Ocean to get back to Germany. Unfortunately, the attack on Papier notified the Allies of his location, and Rear Admiral Christopher Craddock was sent on patrol for the west coast of South America to hunt him down. Craddock has four cruisers and an older and quite obsolete pre-dreadnought called Canopus. Von Spee 
has his four cruisers, and now another one called Dresden, which joins them. They're going to raid the South American coast. So von Spee is hunting one of Craddock's ships called the Glasgow, which is leaving the port of Coronel. In the meantime, Craddock was forced to leave Canopus behind because she was a very slow ship and she hindered his operations. Canopus was patrolling the south coast while all of this was going down. As Glasgow leaves the port, it gets word of von Spee's forces, which were approaching it at 20 knots. Glasgow tries to break out to sea to join Craddock's squadron and finds one of Craddock's slower-moving ships, the Otranto. The two ships link up with Craddock's squadron and as a whole begin fleeing south towards the Canopus. Now Craddock has a dilemma. The slower-moving Otranto is going to get caught by the faster German cruisers. He can take the three cruisers and abandon Otranto to link up with the Canopus, or he can stand and fight without Canopus. Craddock decides to stand and fight, and there are some reasons why he chose to do so. Before Craddock left Stanley in the Falkland Islands, he wrote a letter to be forwarded to the Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Hedworth Mew, in the event of his death. In the letter, he stated he did not want to suffer the fate of his friend, Rear Admiral Ernest Tuberidge, who was awaiting a court-martial for failing to engage the enemy. The governor of the Falkland Islands said later he believed Craddock expected to die and that, quote, Craddock was constitutionally incapable of refusing or even postponing action if there was even the smallest chance of success. End of quote. So Craddock may have been a gambling man, but in hindsight, given his force with Canopus in hand, it was believed that Craddock would win. Regardless, Craddock turns his three cruisers around and begins to sail parallel to the Germans. Von Schwie's force opens fire first at 12,000 yards and batters the HMS Good Hope and Otranto, knocking out their biggest guns. Now Craddock needs to get within 6,000 yards to open up fire on the Germans. As he does this, the German fire becomes more accurate and soon Good Hope and another ship called Monmouth are battered and catching fire as it gets dark outside. Being on fire during the early night makes for them to be much vulnerable targets and Good Hope gets hit by a shell which explodes her forward section, breaking her apart and sinking her. Monmouth tries to use its 4-inch guns to fight back, but the German cruiser dueling her, Gizenau, has 8-inch guns just tearing her apart. Glasgow during all of this actually manages to escape, but Monmouth is at the ends of her rope and eventually sinks. Von Spee realizes at this point that the Canopus is still possibly en route to them, and calls it off for the day, fleeing to Chile. Ironically, it's Glasgow and Otranto who survived this ordeal. Craddock was aboard the Monmouth, and alongside his 1,660 crew, goes down with his ship. This was the first naval defeat for Britain since the Battle of Lake Champlain in the War of 1812. The official explanation for this defeat was presented to the House of Commons by Sir Winston Churchill, who stated, quote, feeling he could not bring the enemy immediately to action as long as he kept with Canopus, he decided to attack them with his fast ships alone, in the belief that even if he himself were destroyed, he would inflict damage on them, which would lead to their certain subsequent destruction. End of quote. After the battle, von Spee's forces were low on ammunition, but relatively unscathed, they made their way to the neutral ports on the west coast of South America. On November the 3rd, they entered 
Valparaiso harbor to the welcoming German population. Celebrations commenced and von Spee was presented with a bouquet of flowers and reportedly refused them, commenting, These will do nicely on my grave. After the loss at the Battle of Coronel, the British had enough of the German raiders and ordered Admiral Sir Deventon Sturdy to hunt them down once and for all. He was given the battlecruisers HMS Invincible and Inflexible alongside five other cruisers. His force could reach around 25.5 knots, while Spee's could pull perhaps 22.5 knots by this point. Sturdy's force also held many 12-inch guns versus von Spee's 8-inch guns. So Sturdy was not only faster, he also outgunned Spee by a lot. Sturdy sailed his force through the Atlantic over to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands to coal up before hunting down von Spee. Meanwhile, von Spee had finally decided to break through to the Atlantic to get back home to Germany. Now at this point, von Spee's force had plenty of coal. In fact, they had a lot. Yet when they made their way past the Cape Horn, von Spee proposed a raid on the Falkland Islands before returning home to Germany. The raid was of course unnecessary, as they had enough coal to carry on, and most of von Spee's captains opposed the idea. Nevertheless, von Spee got his way, and they made their way to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. Von Spee's vanguard was Gisenau and the Nuremberg, which approached Stanley on the morning of December the 8th, 1914. To their shock, they were fired upon by the Canopus, which had been grounded behind a hill acting as a sort of coastal battery. Then they saw the tall masts of battlecruisers in the port Stanley, realizing a large force was here, and von Spee gave the orders to flee to open sea. In unfortunate circumstances, if von Spee pressed the attack, sturdy ships would have been sitting ducks having to face the full broadside power of von Spee's force, who could maneuver to any position he pleased. Better yet, von Spee could have intentionally sunk one of his ships in front of the harbor, blocking the fleet and thus saving the rest of his, but he did not do so. Von Spee's ships were running for their lives when Sturdy finally got out of the harbor in pursuit, and their superior speed would more than make up for the head start. It was the two British battlecruisers who would catch up to the SMS Leipzig first. Von Spee knew he could not outrun the British force, so he took his heavy cruisers to do battle, trying to give the lighter cruisers a chance to flee. Initially, von Spee's cruisers had the advantageous position to fire, and the Scharnhorst and Gisenau shelled the Invincible pretty well, but it did no significant damage. When the Invincible and Inflexible were in position to fire back, Scharnhorst and Gisenau met them as Leipzig and Nuremberg fled. The two battlecruisers turned their broadsides at the two German cruisers and battered them. Scharnhorst's funnels were flattened, she lit on fire and sank taking von Spee and her entire crew down with her. The Gisenau dueled and evaded until she ran out of ammunition and was shelled until she sunk. 190 of her crew were rescued from the water later. Meanwhile, the two German cruisers that fled were being chased by British cruisers. Nuremberg was sailing at full speed until her engines blew, and then she turned to do battle. Because the Nuremberg blew her engines, the British cruiser Kent, which was hunting her, was able to maneuver around her and shelled her while Nuremberg could do barely anything to fire back. Nuremberg ends up rolling over and sinks after this disastrous duel. 
The last ship, Leipzig, in a similar fashion, runs out her engines, and the Glasgow catches up to her. Leipzig actually had also run out of ammunition, but still had her battle insignia up, so Glasgow shelled her a few times until Leipzig managed to send a flare-up. As Glasgow ceased fire, the Leipzig suddenly rolled over and sank, leaving only 18 survivors. Now, as I mentioned, von Spee died with his crew, and amongst the dead was two of his sons. 215 Germans were rescued, while over 1,871 died. The British had 10 deaths and 19 wounded. Quite a one-sided fight. Kaiser Wilhelm wrote a note after receiving a report of the naval battle, and it read, quote, It remains a mystery. What made Spee attack the Falkland Islands? End of quote. And one does wonder why he did it. It is alleged that the British sent a fake signal in the German naval code to von Spee, luring him in, and there is a ton of merit to this as the British cryptographers had broken the German naval codes, as the British seemingly always managed to do in both world wars for that matter. Honestly, the British were incredible at this. With von Spee's raiders taken out, the Germans were effectively done in Asia and the Pacific. While all of these naval battles were going on, the Japanese, Australians, and New Zealanders invaded and occupied all the Pacific islands the German Empire held. Japan would invade and occupy the German-held Marianas, Carolines, and Marshall Islands, and this was done almost with no resistance as most of these islands held nothing but a few colonial troops and perhaps small police forces. Now, Japan, as we mentioned, had already occupied Tsingtao upon taking it, but this did not stop them from occupying greater portions of Shandong province in China. They soon built up railways in northeastern Shandong province, appropriated telegram facilities, post offices began even opium trafficking, and even tried to levy taxes on the local Chinese. Then they would make their most egregious act. They sent China what has become known as the 21 Demands. China at this time was, to be frank, fractured. The newly formed Republic of China was in control of Yan Shukai, and in no way does this mean all of China. China is falling into what is called the warlord period at this point, where multiple generalissimos are controlling vast regions of China simultaneously. Anyways, the 21 demands were, as you can imagine, a list of 21 things that would basically make China nothing more than a vassal to Japan. We are talking Japan simply taking many areas such as former German territories, most of Manchuria, parts of eastern Mongolia, rights to mines, barring all other powers from China and effectively controlling China's foreign policies. Now, Japan sent these demands to Yan Shukai, expecting him to keep them a secret, but the word gone out. The international community did not act as Yuan Shikai had hoped, as they were pretty much occupied with the war in Europe. It was obvious none of them were coming to China's aid. However, the United States, which had remained neutral at this point, issued a formal diplomatic objection, stating it would not recognize any agreements that might go against its open-door policy. The general of Japan eventually intervened and deleted parts of the 21 demands that were deemed too overbearing and formed a new set of 13 demands, which were sent as an ultimatum with a two-day deadline for response. 
Yuan Shikai was competing with other warlords in China and was in no position to risk war with Japan. So on May the 8th, 1915, Yuan Shikai accepted the 13 demands. Now the United States had already disapproved of Japan's actions, but now Great Britain, Japan's closest ally, had also expressed concern over what it was perceived to be Japan's overbearing and bully-like approach to diplomacy. This is nothing to say of the reaction from China, which you can imagine was very negative. The Chinese were so upset by what was seen as the encroachment of the Japanese upon a very weak Chinese government. This would later cultivate into the May 4th movement of 1919, which we might talk about a bit later. Anyways, in the end, the 13 demands were more negative for Japan than positive. Without the tossed-away parts from the first list of demands, Japan gained little more than it already had in China. And really, for Japan, World War I was basically this very large opportunity not only to grab German territories in the Asia-Pacific, but to earn a place amongst the great powers. The Entente powers repeatedly asked Japan for aid during the war. One major demand was for Japan to help them in the Mediterranean Sea. In 1914, Britain requested that Japan send naval forces to the Mediterranean theater, but Japan refused it as it was preoccupied with the siege of Tsingtao. Britain asked again in December of 1914 to January of 1915, but Japan continuously refused, stating that sending the IGN forces so far away from the home islands, well, it would leave them at risk from an American attack. Remember, during this period, Relations with the United States were quite sour, and to their credit, the U.S. did have forces in the Philippines, which were awfully close to Japan. Then, in February of 1916, Britain offered something called the Anglo-Japanese Treaty of Commerce and Navigation, which would allow Japanese immigrants entry into Australia, New Zealand, and that Japanese doctors could practice within British colonies. This was a major step for Japan to emerge on more equal terms with the great powers, and they accepted this in return they formed the first special squadron to help escort troop ships from Australia and New Zealand to the Middle East. It was not exactly what Britain wanted, but it was one step closer. Then, in 1917, Germany issued a declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare against Allied shipping. Now, Britain was very antagonistic towards Japan's occupation of previously held German territories in the Asia-Pacific. But now, with 34 German and Austro-Hungarian U-boats operating from the Adriatic, destroying Allied shipping within the Mediterranean Sea, well, this pushed Britain to offer its support to Japan's claims on former German territories, if Japan would help in the Mediterranean. Japan agreed to this and formed a second special squadron led by Rear Admiral Seto Kozo. He took three cruisers and 12 destroyers into the Mediterranean Sea by April of 1917. The IGN then began escorting troop ships going between Malta, Salonika, Alexandria, Taranto, and Marseille. The IGN proved to be a crucial part of the war effort and made a famous rescue mission on May 4th of 1917. A British troop ship, the SS Transylvania, was torpedoed by a German U-boat off the Gulf of Genoa. The IGN destroyers Saikaki and Matsu managed to force the U-boat to leave and rescued over 3,000 men from the sinking ship. 
During their operations, the IGN escorted something like 21 British warships, 700 Allied transports, and over 500,000 passengers, covering over 240,000 nautical miles. The British were so impressed by their performance, they eventually handed over two Royal Navy destroyers to the IGN for their use. Now before you think this was all done out of the kindness of their own hearts, the Japanese received extremely valuable stuff for all of this. The British gave them new technology and innovative tactics against U-boats. In fact, the Japanese took back with them seven German U-boats for study, which would contribute heavily to the IGN's future submarine program against the U.S. Speaking of the United States, because of the unrestricted submarine warfare of Germany, the U.S. joined World War I and found itself on the same side as Japan. Despite their tense relations, the two nations signed an agreement called the Lansing Ishii Agreement on November the 2nd of 1917 to settle disputes they had over China. Both nations agreed to respect the independence and territoriality of China, but the U.S. recognized Japan had special interest in Manchuria. It's always about Manchuria. Get used to that being an obsession. Also speaking about China, where were they in all of the mayhem that was World War I? Well, China, as we said, was fragmented, unstable both politically and militarily. She remained neutral during all of this. Though during the siege at Tsingtao, Yuan Shikai secretly offered the British to send 50,000 troops to retake the city from the Germans, but he was refused. Still being neutral did not mean China could not contribute to the war effort, as they did a great deal. Beginning with the French came the idea to hire Chinese citizens for non-combatant use. In 1916, 50,000 laborers were hired and sent to Marseille. Britain found out about this and realized quickly the potential and formed its own Chinese Labor Corps, based out of Wei Highway. The British would employ roughly 100,000 Chinese, and the Russians eventually jumped in, hiring up to possibly 200,000. Though, sources vary greatly on the Russian side. In the Western Front, these laborers repaired tanks, assembled shells, transported munitions, dug up all the trenches. Yeah, did you think it was the soldiers doing all that? By the way, I found one little story that I just had to mention. It's in regards to a language barrier situation between the Chinese laborers and the Western forces. Allegedly, later on in the war, an American soldier came up to a Chinese laborer and said, Let's go which sounds like gu, in Chinese this means dog. Well, this nearly caused a rebellion amongst all the Chinese laborers. So, there was a lot of obstacles, to say the least. These men worked something like 10 hours a day, 7 days a week, sometimes under heavy fire. In Russia, they worked in coal mines, factories, built railways, and did similar things for the Eastern Front that was seen in the Western Front. Funny enough, when Russia undergoes its revolution, up to perhaps 40,000 Chinese laborers end up joining the Red Army, fighting on multiple fronts. The Red Army found the Chinese particularly useful because they had no loyalty to any parts of Russia, and thus they made great executioners, as well as shock troops. Now China was neutral for most of the war, but by 1917, when the U.S. joined, well, the U.S. began to advise China that if they joined the war on the Central Powers, they might get a seat at the table. So China took the advice and declared war on August of 1917. 
China then took all the remaining concessions the Germans and Austro-Hungarians held in places like Tianjin and Hankou and canceled reparation payments to both countries that dated back all the way to the Boxer Rebellion. China never ended up sending any troops to places like the Western Front, but they would send 2,300 troops to Vladivostok in August of 1918 to help with the Siberian intervention. That little ordeal, which we can't really get into here, was when the Great Powers tried to help the White Russian forces against the Red Army. A lot of grievances were to be held between the United States and Japan, who both sent forces to help with this little adventure. You can also watch My Japan During World War I video if you want a more in-depth look at this entire ordeal. It's actually a pretty funny story to say the least. And that would be found at the Pacific War Channel over on YouTube. Now when World War I came to an end and the Paris Peace Conference was being held, both China and Japan had very high expectations. China was given two seats at the table, while Japan was given five seats at the table since they had contributed combat troops. Japan was also given a seat at the table alongside the great powers. In fact, Japan got to sit beside the Big Four and was given a permanent seat on the Council of the New League of Nations. The Treaty of Versailles awarded Japan the territories it acquired from Germany, including Qingzhou, to the horror of the Chinese officials. China denounced this transfer, stating that Shandong province was the birthplace of Confucius, and that in fact, it was the same as saying Christians should concede Jerusalem. China furthermore demanded Shandong province back, and an abolition to all privileges afforded to all the foreign powers in China, such as extraterritoriality, and to cancel Japan's 13 demands. The great powers refused, and dismissed them. Pretty painful. As a result, the Chinese diplomat at Versailles simply refused to sign the treaty. Now Japan had gained a lot. Hell, they finally gained recognition as a great power being at the table. But Japan wanted one more crucial amendment added to the treaty. What Japan wanted was an acknowledgement as an equal to the other great powers. And you might be asking, well, what do you mean? They are at the table. What Japan wants is racial equality. And thus Japan presented what is now called the Racial Equality Proposal. The proposal was intended to demonstrate racial equality for all members of the League of Nations. Let me say that again for all members of the League of Nations, thus we are not talking about equality amongst races here. Here is an excerpt from the proposal. The equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations, the high contracting parties agree to accord as soon as possible to all alien nationals of states, members of the League, equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction either in law or in fact on account of their race or nationality. The proposal received a majority vote with 11 out of 17 delegates voting yes and the rest not being present. However, it was Woodrow Wilson who overturned it by saying although the proposal had been approved by a clear majority, the particular matter had strong opposition manifest itself and that on this issue, a unanimous vote would be required. Another voice that raised opposition was Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who stated the amendment would mean the end of the white Australia immigration policy, 
In fact, Billy Hughes was quoted to say his opposition at the meeting was based on, quote, 95 out of 100 Australians rejected the very idea of equality. No government could ever live for a day in Australia if it tampered with white Australia. The position is this either, the Japanese proposal, means something or it means nothing. If the former, out with it. If the later, why have it? Crikey. The Japanese diplomats met with Billy Hughes in a private meeting, by the way, and they described the man as, and I quote, Billy Hughes was a vulgar peasant who was loud and obnoxious. End of quote. Now, they still got Billy Hughes to agree to the clause if it did not affect his immigration policy. Yet, for Woodrow Wilson, the situation seemed too problematic as the United States was already limiting the migration of Japanese. Alongside this, he needed votes from segregationist Southern Democrats at the time. Seeing the big stir the Australians made allowed Woodrow to have pretext to reject it outright. And for those who know a little bit about Woodrow Wilson's views on race, well, let's just say it does not come to much of a surprise that he would not want to support this. After the Treaty of Versailles, Japan emerged as one of the great powers after World War I, but not racially equal. Now do remember, Japan had seen the situation play out during the First Sino-Japanese War, then after the Russo-Japanese War, and now again after World War I. It was now very obvious to Japan it would never be treated as true equals. And yet again, this humiliation was shoved in Japan's face by the United States. Japan was humiliated and began to alienate itself from the great powers, and soon would fully embrace militarism, imperialism, and expansionism. During World War I, Japan increasingly filled orders needed for war materials for the Allies. The wartime boom helped diversify the country's industry, increase its exports, and transform Japan from a debtor to a creditor nation for the first time. Although, this industrial boom also led to rapid inflation and the outbreak of the rice riots throughout Japan. Japan emerged after World War I as the third strongest naval power in the world and learned anti-submarine warfare techniques and technologies that would contribute to its future submarine program. Yet the Siberian intervention we briefly mentioned went abysmally. The Anglo-Japanese Treaty was terminated and Japan was dealing with a two-party political system back home which we can now call the Taisho Democracy. The Taisho Democracy situation was not exactly new. It really sprang up after the Russo-Japanese War. You see, the people had sacrificed a great deal for the Russo-Japanese War. Their government had imposed higher taxes to pay for the war, which hurt almost everyone in Japanese society. They were on the brink of bankruptcy. After this, people became much more vocal about the government's decisions. People began to express their opinions with political power, starting political movements such as launching new parties or trying for universal suffrage. They demanded to be free of regulation and wanted more limited government and lower taxes. In 1918, the first commoner served as prime minister. His name was Hara Takashi. He faced quite a long list of problems when he took power. Inflation and the adjustment of the post-war economy, the influx of foreign trade, and major labor issues. And when I say labor issues, this is also a time when socialist and communist parties start to emerge. 
In the midst of this political minefield, Hara is assassinated by a disgruntled railroad worker in 1921. Boom. His death is followed up with a succession of non-party prime ministers and coalition cabinets. Fear of left-wing power will grow like a virus from this point on. In 1922, Japan was forced to sign the Washington Naval Treaty alongside the other great powers, which had a profound effect on Japan. The treaty established an international capital ship ratio, limited the size and armaments of capital ships, and forced Japan to return the least territories in Shandong. Now the U.S. and Britain were industrial powerhouses. Given a war occurred, they could lose ships and rebuild them quite fast. But for a nation like Japan that was resource limited, they had to build ships over longer periods of time. Thus, this treaty was seen as another snub by the West and gave an advantage to the U.S. and Royal Navies over Japan. The national debt started to grow back as renewed export competition grew. Then, in 1923, the Great Kanto earthquake happened. Here is a quote from the captain of one SS Dongola, which was anchored in Yokohama's harbor. During the earthquake, quote, at 11:55 a.m., ship commenced to tremble and vibrate violently, and on looking towards the shore, it was seen that a terrible earthquake was taking place. Buildings were collapsing in all directions, and in a few minutes, nothing could be seen for clouds of dust. When these cleared away, fire could be seen starting in many directions, and in half an hour, the whole city was in flames. End of quote. The earthquake killed an estimated 142,800 people from firestorms, fire tornadoes, tsunamis, and building collapses. The capital was damaged so much the government considered moving it. Wow. So needless to say, the earthquake put pressure on everyone going forward in Japan. On top of this, a radical Marxist named. Tazuki Namda tried to assassinate the Prince Regent of Japan on December the 27th of 1923, a man named Oh Hirohito. So the Communist Party was banned and thoroughly suppressed. By 1926, the Japanese Communists would be forced underground. We will talk about this much more in the future episodes, but I wanted to make a note of something. When you think of anti-communism prior to World War II, you often think about Adolf Hitler's Nazi Party as the number one anti-communist. Well, you would be mistaken. For this period, all the way until probably the end of World War II, the Japanese would be the most anti-communist force by far and large. The brutal way the Japanese government goes to quell any hint of communism at home is outstanding. And it makes you quickly realize why their foreign policy always favored attacking the Soviet Union first. Although the communists and the tenants were brutally repressed, thus ending the threats they posed, economic and political pressures forced the government to enact a peace preservation law of 1925 that essentially criminalized socialism, communism, republicanism, and democracy. Boom. Here is an excerpt from Jensen Marius in regards to the Peace Preservation Law of 1925. It is as follows: quote, "The awareness of an incipient communist movement resulted in provisions targeting anyone who had organized an association with the objective of altering the Kokutai, that being the national polity, 
or the form of government or denying the system of private property and anyone who has joined such an association with full knowledge of its object, anyone found guilty, shall be liable to imprisonment with or without hard labor for a term not exceeding 10 years. Other provisions went on to forbid discussion or encouragement of such activities. Three years later, the law was revised to make it even more severe discussion of altering the kokutai, which meant questioning the imperial system, could now be punished with the death penalty. End of quote. This was the end of what we're calling Taisho democracy. What emerged is a complicated thing based on the kokutai, which translates into something like national body or structure of the state. Now this is not a new concept. It went all the way back to Tokugawa times. It is a vague and ill-defined, most likely on purpose, concept. It represents all aspects of Japanese history and culture, and particularly that revolves around the authority of the emperor. It's the national entity since the Meiji constitution. It was the sovereign power of the emperor, aided by the organs of government. Now the Kokutai phenomenon is going to evolve more and more, but at this point in time, it was seen as an unshakable part of Japan. Like we said earlier, Japan criminalized communism, socialism, republicanism, and democracy because it could alter the Kokutai. So what we had now are two things, the Kokutai power of the emperor and the Seitai, which was a secondary concept. Seitai refers to the exercises of the political authority, i.e. government bodies. Things here are going to get messier and messier as Japan wrestles with how does the Seitai do anything in regards to the Kokutai. For example, if everyone in the government says their actions are furthering the Kokutai, well then, what do you do to stop them? The Kokutai emerges as the symbol of the state from then on and a barrier against communism. We will repeatedly come back to this situation, I assure you. Anyways, Emperor Taisho dies of a heart attack on the morning of December the 25th of 1926 at the age of 47. Emperor Hirohito takes the throne, ushering in the Showa era. Hirohito came into a real mess when he took the throne. During his first year of reign, began what is now called the Showa financial crisis. You see, because of World War I, many companies invested heavily in increased production capacity, which caused an economic bubble. As you can imagine, after World War I, there was an economic slowdown, and the Kanto earthquake of 1923 certainly did not help. This led to an economic depression, and many businesses simply fell apart. The banks tried to issue discounted earthquake bonds. Yes, earthquake bonds. Really an interesting concept. However, by 1927, a rumor sprang out that the banks holding these bonds were going to go bankrupt. So as you can imagine, everyone who held a bond panicked, and everyone started selling all of them. The Prime Minister at the time, Wakatsuko, attempted to have an emergency decree issued to allow the banks to extend emergency loans to save them, but this request was denied by the Privy Council, and he was forced to resign. 
His successor, Prime Minister Tanaka Gichi, immediately issued a three-week bank holiday and issued emergency loans. However, by this point, all the smaller banks collapsed, leaving only the large financial branches of the Zaibatsu left. From this point on, the Zaibatsu effectively dominated Japan's economy all the way to the end of 1945. Alongside the small bank's collapse, many businesses went bankrupt, exports decreased, silk and rice prices plummeted, and unemployment skyrocketed. The situation worsened with the Great Depression of 1929, leading Japan's finance minister, Takahashi Kirikyo, to devalue the currency and provide economic relief measures that would be very successful. And during all of this, something else was growing. That was the emperor-centered ultra-nationalism, which some might describe as Japanese fascism. This new nationalism leaned heavily on the Bushido moral code. To be more precise, it was based on romanticized versions, or better said, a bastardized version of it. Now, take into account the racial discrimination aspect at this time. Japan had been humiliated based on race countless times and continued to be barred from immigration from white-dominated countries. To combat this, the Showa era saw the emergence of a racial superiority complex. Japan began to discriminate against other Asiatic nations in the same fashion that was done to them by the white great powers. They formed racial theories based on the sacred nature of their Yamato race, being the superior Asiatic race. This all coincided in a time when other groups were forming similar ideology, like, let's say, the Nazi party. Speaking about the Nazi party, they would have quite a large influence on many Japanese high officials. Two factions emerged within the military at this time, the Tosahai Control Faction and Kodaha Imperial Way Faction. The military at this time became obsessed with the perceived threat of the ABCD powers, that being America, Britain, China, and the Dutch, and the largest threat was always the Soviet Union. Japan was isolated, they had no real allies, and they believed the only solution to these perceived threats, well, it was for the Empire of Japan to go to war. The civilian government had lost control and Japan's military began to move independently of the government. This time period has been coined the name government by assassination, and for good reason. Just about all government leaders will be assassinated at some point or attempts to assassinate them will be made. Now, like I said, two factions formed and they were both militaristic, favoring a policy of expansionism associated with a dictatorship under the emperor. To try and give a bit of a better description, here is an excerpt from Herbert P. Bix. Quote, In terms of strategic doctrine, the Kodaha considered the Soviet Union to be Japan's main enemy. They emphasized military and national spirit over material force, a principle that had become army doctrine after the Russo-Japanese War. The Tosahai, on the other hand, gave priority to military modernization and the establishment of a national defense state, a term borrowed from Nazi Germany. Tosahai officers were aware that modern war had become a confrontation between whole societies requiring calculations of total national power. War against both the United States and the Soviet Union would require the technological upgrading of the army and navy, the modernization of industry, and the spiritual mobilization of the entire Japanese nation. 
End of quote. Now, they were not all that different when it came to their goals, but how they would achieve them is where you find some differences. The Kodaha faction sought to achieve this via a coup d'etat and was willing to use assassination to meet its goals. They advocated for an invasion of the Soviet Union. The Tosahai faction was also willing to use assassination to meet their goals, but they sought reform by working within the existing system and foresaw a future war to be a total war. They sought to maximize Japan's industrial and military capacity by working alongside the Japanese bureaucracy and saibatsu conglomerations, which the Kodahai despised. The Tosahai were unwilling to do something as radical as a coup d'etat. Now, all the way in Manchuria, never forget this most important part of the world to the entire story that is the Pacific War. Well, it's going to be rocked by something quite big. Manchuria had a Japanese army present called the Kwangtung Army. It was established back in 1919 to defend Japan's holdings of the Liandong Peninsula and Southern Manchurian Railway. For the last decade, the Kwangtung Army became a stronghold for the Kodaha faction, advocating for a more aggressive expansionist policy in mainland Asia, and going as far as to plot the assassination of the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zhoulin. On June the 4th, 1928, Zhang Zhoulin's personal train was destroyed by an explosion at the Hanguangtung railway station. Kwangtung operatives responsible thought this action would allow them to expand further into Manchuria. Well, it actually backfired as his successor and son, Zhang Zhuliang, rightfully angry about his father's death, began to ally himself to a rather important person called Chiang Kai-shek. Prior to this event, Zhou Lin was a strong warlord who ruled Manchuria and had a very strained relationship with Chiang Kai-shek, to say the least. Well, Zhu Liang threw in with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, so now his entire region of Manchuria was officially part of the nationalist government, considerably weakening Japan's position in Manchuria. Well, the situation did not stop the Kwangtung ambitions for Manchuria, and would you know it, there was another explosion on a railway. Get used to hearing that. By the way, it's going to be an ongoing theme. On September the 18th of 1931, members of the Kwangtung army detonated a small quantity of dynamite on the South Manchurian Railway near Mukden. The explosion is actually so weak that it failed to destroy any track, and a train would even pass over it minutes later. They intended to attract the local Chinese troops to the explosion to give legitimacy for their invasion of Manchuria by showcasing how the attack targeted a vital railway for Japan's industry. This event, by the way, is called the Mukden Incident, or the Manchurian Incident. Now I want to take a moment and talk about Hirohito during this moment, because it's important. Emperor Hirohito could have used his imperial influence to prevent the invasion of Manchuria but chose not to do so, according to Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan by Herbert P. Bix, quote, In the Meiji Constitution, Hirohito possessed the imperial power to rule the country and move the military at his will, making him accountable for the outbreak of armed conflicts and war crimes. He actively participated in the decision-making process of the war efforts, despite countless literature stating he sat by unknowing to most events unfolding. The Kwangtung officers were emboldened by the assassinations of Zhang Zhoulin and performed the incident without tacit agreement of the generals in Tokyo HQ. When Hirohito heard about the incident, 
he sought an explanation from the army as to why they did this without his permission. Hirohito stated, the government was making efforts to quell the situation, but the army saw this as politicians swaying the emperor. End of quote. So in other words, they just kept doing it, and Hirohito chose to not publicly do anything about it. What should be taken from all of this is that the military was overpowering the government. Hirohito selectively would dictate orders once he ordered the military to suppress insurgents who had assassinated some of his politicians, yet he did not stop the invasion of Manchuria. In fact, instead of punishing the wrongdoers, he instead actively joined in aiding and abating the military seizure of Manchuria. In many ways, Hirohito allowed the military to effectively take over Japan's China policy and turn it openly aggressive. Herbert P. Bix's book is very illuminating about this. I guess you can call it the untold truth behind Hirohito and the Pacific War. For a long time, since 1945, the narrative was always that Hirohito was something like a hostage emperor who had no power. Well, this is far from the truth. Herbert P. Bix's information, by the way, comes to us as late as the year 2000, because the Japanese government, since 1945, chose to hide a lot of this information and continues to hide information in regards to Hirohito. Anyways, you will hear a great deal more about all of this, in particular, stories later. The following morning of September the 19th, two artillery pieces installed at Mukden's Officers Club fired on the Chinese garrison nearby in response to the alleged railway attack. Zhang Ziyang's small air force was destroyed and his soldiers fled their destroyed Bidang barracks as 500 Japanese attacked the Chinese garrison of over 7,000. By the evening, the fighting was over and the Japanese occupied Mukden at the cost of 500 Chinese lives and two Japanese. This initiated the invasion of Manchuria. The Japanese Imperial General HQ communicated a decision to the Kwangtung Army, command to localize the incident, but the commander-in-chief, General Shigeru Honjo, ordered his forces to proceed to expand operations all along South Manchurian railways. Soon, every city along the South Manchurian Railway fell into the Japanese hands, and by October, the Kwangtung Army had occupied Jilin, Tianyan, Yanbian, and eastern Lianying areas. Although initially shocked by the insubordination, the government was now impressed by the quick victories in Manchuria and was starting to send reinforcements on their way. In the following months, the Zhaokao and Xinjiao campaigns secured the western Lianying areas and Chichakar areas after the fall of Harbin and finally destroy the remaining resistance in the regions. Boom. With Manchuria firmly under Japanese control, the Kwangtung army established the Manchukuo puppet state and started a pacification campaign that allowed them to control the political administration of this new puppet state. Now you might be wondering, what did the rest of the world think about all this? Well, the response of the Western nations was condemnation of the Japanese aggression. The League of Nations ordered the Litton Commission to investigate the incident. They found Japan to be guilty of the attack which prompted the Japanese government to exit the League of Nations, a decision that was influenced by the military and nationalist leaders of Japan. Hirohito had a hand to play in all of this, by the way, when it came to leaving the League of Nations. He was quite pleased that the army had expanded the empire into the resource-rich region of Manchuria. 
Manchuria, of course, was a breadbasket, and the agricultural land and its produce would aid Japan for decades to come. In the face of such gains, Hirohito signed off on the withdrawal of the League of Nations, happily. In spring of 1932, Prime Minister Inikai Tuyoshi was assassinated by 11 young naval officers in an event that became known as the May 15 incident. The young officers were angry about the ratification of the London Naval Treaty, which was an extension of the Washington Naval Treaty, limiting the size of the IGN. They thought by performing this assassination, they could perhaps overthrow the government and replace it with a military rule. The 11 officers all were around 20 years old, by the way. They went to Yunaki's residence, and before they shot him, we have his last words, and they are as followed. Quote, If I could speak, you would understand... One of the officers replied, Dialogue is useless. And they shot him. End of quote. The eleven officers were court-martialed, but during the trial, they all proclaimed their loyalty to the emperor, and this aroused popular sympathy for reforms in the government and its economy. Over 110,000 petitions flooded in, apparently written in blood from sympathizers around the country, pleading for a lenient sentence for the officers. Nine youths from Niigata asked to be tried by the court instead of the accused and sent the court a jar of their own pickled, severed pinky fingers as a gesture of sincerity. Wow! The punishment was very light, as you can imagine. This incident eroded the rule of law and the democratic-led government quite a bit. This also led Hirohito to abandon support for the constitutional government conducted by party cabinets. Now cabinets would be of national unity, headed by admirals and generals. Then in late February of 1936, a military insurrection took place in Tokyo, and it took the life of Hirohito's closest political advisor, amongst many others. This event is known as the February 26 coup attempt. It was led by many members of the Kodaha faction within the IGA. The insurrectionists, a group of IGA officers, believed the problems facing Japan were a result of Japan's straying away from the kokutai. They saw the privileged classes exploiting the common people, leading to widespread poverty, and must be deceiving the emperor and thus usurping his power, further weakening Japan. They had seven targets to assassinate, including two former prime ministers. Around 1,400 troops made an attack on the prime minister's residence and other buildings in Tokyo. They killed Minister Saito Mokoto, Finance Minister Takahashi Korekiyo, and the Army Inspector General of Military Training, Watanabe Jotaro. They had a list of demands that included things like the arrest and dismissal of certain officers and the appointment of a new cabinet led by General Kawashima, who was a leader amongst the Kodaha faction, and to pay more attention to the conquering of Asia. When Hirohito found out about the ongoing coup, he was furious and demanded the military end the incident. According to Herbert P. Bix's book, Hirohito also might have had a fear the insurrectionists might enlist his brother, Prince Chuichibu, enforcing him to abdicate. This idea actually remains sort of a conspiracy theory to this day, by the way. Now, the insurrectionist demands were presented to Hirohito, and he refused them, and he demanded the uprising be suppressed. In fact, Hirohito declared administrative martial law based on Article 8 of the Constitution, and was formally invoking his sovereign powers in doing so. The goal of the insurrectionists to appoint a new military-dominated cabinet centered around their followers, 
failed as a result of Hirohito putting his foot down. Over the next few days, the efforts to quell the rebellion were not going swiftly enough, and Hirohito was so angry he threatened to assume personal command of the Imperial Guard and to order the attack upon the rebels himself. Knowing they had lost the battle, the rebels eventually gave themselves up. Many committed suicide. The Kodaha faction was mostly purged by the Tosahai faction of the military, and those who survived were forced to join the Tosahai faction. A certain member of the Tosai faction, by the way, was Hideki Tojo, who ordered the arrest of all the officers in the Kwangtong army suspected of supporting the coup. Now I'd like you to take notice of two things. One, Hirohito used his authority to suppress this event. It goes to show, despite a lot of rhetoric about the actual authority Hirohito had, he proved during this time he could put his foot down when he chose to do so. Key words, chose to do so. Second, despite the failure of the coup, a lot of the goals of the insurrectionists were actually obtained. Remember, the Tosahai had more or less the same goals as the Kodahai faction. They began to move forward with them. A new cabinet was formed and now only active duty officers would be allowed to serve as the Minister of War and the Minister of the Navy. Until this point, reservists and retired officers had been allowed to serve these positions. This change would have far-reaching implications for the Japanese government, as it effectively gave the military veto powers over government policies. By asking a minister to resign, and refusing to appoint a new one, the military could cause the government to fall at their leisure. Alongside this, they expanded the military's budget and increased the size of the standing army in Manchuria threefold. They abandoned the London Naval Treaty, which was the cornerstone of the February 26 purge, and pressed more war on China. For those who sought peace in Japan, their voices would literally be shut under the threat of violence. The government of assassination was over because the military just took the reins and would lead Japan to doom. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals, and if you could, Help us produce more content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry after all that, why don't you go check out my channel on YouTube, the Pacific War Channel. It would mean a lot to me. Well, alrighty, I hope you enjoyed that rather complicated part of Japanese history. Wish I could have done it more justice. You know, talk a little bit more about the 1920s, early 1930s, but the show must really go on. So why don't you join us next time as we dive across the Pacific to see the situation in the good old U.S. of A.